So, Don, I've heard you use uh, an illustration a few times, and I've used it a few times in my sermons. I think our church knows it well. I think I've given you credit for it most of the time. Um, but do you know this illustration I'm talking about, the, uh, the illustration you use about two, two Hebrew blokes, I believe you say, um, fellows, chaps, the night of the Passover, and one... Um, they both they po- both put blood in the doorposts, but one has doubt. Would, would you give us the real version of that? Well, if you've repeated it so often here, then they already know it, don't they? I want to get it on video, though. Oh, I you see. Doing it. it doesn't count until it's on video. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I, I picture two Jewish gentlemen uh, with the remarkable names of uh, Smith and Brown. Um, and Mr. Smith says to Mr. Brown... Um, you've heard that the angel of death is passing through tonight? Yes, of course, we all know about that. Moses has instructed us, says Mr. Brown. And Mr. Smith says, well, um, uh, have, have, you, have you done what we've been told to do? Have you, have you slaughtered the Passover lamb? You're about to eat the whole meal and, and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lentil? Well, yes, yes, I, of course. I mean, the, the, it's, when, the, when the angel sees the, the, the blood, then he will pass over. That's, that's where this feast is named. Well, Mr. Smith says, you know, I've done it too, of course, but am I worried? I mean, Really? You think of the things we've seen the last few weeks. Frogs, you know? The, the, the Nile turning to blood. Flies, you wouldn't believe. Plague of darkness. I mean, just terrible stuff. And now an angel is going through the land, and he's going to take out the firstborn. You, you, you know, I know I've got 17 kids, but my firstborn I, I, really, I, I really, really love. And the firstborn of the cattle and, and, and everything. I mean, th- th- this is really scary stuff. Mr. Brown says, what are you worried about? What God says through Moses is that if you sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel, then then when the angel of death passes over, you'll you'll be safe. You'll you'll be entirely safe. What what have you got to worry about? Oh, I know that's what he says. But, you know, with circumstances like these going on, this is pretty scary stuff. So that night, the angel of death passes through the land. Which man lost his son, Mr. Smith or Mr. Brown? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because the salvation of the Son did not depend on the strength or intensity of the faith, but on the object of the faith. And the obvious application for Christians is very clear. Thanks. That is such a good illustration. Do you have any good illustrations, Fred? I do now. (laughs) I just want to know who do I footnote? (laughs) Him. (laughs) For sure, him. Let's talk about sanctification. It's been something that we've kind of covered or hinted at all through the weekend. Uh, Fred, give us a good definition of the doctrine of sanctification. What does sanctification mean? Well, the word means to to make holy, but there are different senses in which we are made holy in the New Testament. So the doctrine of sanctification necessarily then entails, uh, we were discussing this afternoon, positional sanctification, 
I stand before God in his sight, in Christ, sanctified. I'm a saint. There's what we talked about, definitive sanctification, that decisive break with sin that we're given in regeneration, effectual calling and all of that. But so that sin no longer reigns over us. We're, we've been sanctified in that sense. At the other end, there is final sanctification, what we often refer to as glorification sometimes. It overlaps. Uh, when finally we will be made perfect in every sense like Christ. And in the in-between the in time, there's what we call progressive sanctification, where we are becoming more and more holy. Progressing, in, in Paul's words, from glory to glory. As the hymn says, till in heaven we take our place. Okay. And so what's the relationship between justification and sanctification? Are those tied? Are those separate? Oh, they're inseparable. They are distinct, but inseparable. Um, I think I mentioned last evening that um, not just Warfield, but Reformed theologians all throughout have just insisted that the one faith by which we are justified is the faith by which we are sanctified as well. Uh, they are not the same, and in justification, I'm declared righteous, I'm cleared from the penalty of sin. But in sanctification, I'm freed from the power of sin. Um, but the two are inseparable. That by the one faith, we are saved. The, the point of it all is, is that we are in union with Christ. And certain f- blessings flow out of our union with Christ. One is justification, the other is sanctification. And it is necessarily the case that if I am in Christ, then I am declared righteous before God. And it is also necessarily the case that if I am in Christ, in his death and resurrection, I experience newness of life. Okay, so uh, maybe Don, you can start with this. Uh, start with answering this question: What is the uh, what's the role of the gospel in the Christian life for someone who's been a Christian for decades? How do they keep going back to it? Should they? Yeah, could I come back to the last to the last question first, and then go on? This is not this is not in any sense revising anything that Fred has very ably said. But I've realized that over the weekend there is one element of sanctification we haven't talked about at all that's probably worth thinking about. Um, it, it's it's obvious to to those reading the original language that the whole sanctification word group is the same as the holy word group in both Hebrew and Greek, and and it's worth stopping just to have a definition of holiness. I think, because then I think it begins to shed light on what sanctification is as well. Um, holiness in the Bible has concentric, concentric rings of meaning. Right at the center, God is holy. God alone is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does that mean? Does that mean moral, moral, moral is the Lord? Uh, that doesn't quite cut it. And some people say that holy is separate. Separate, separate, separate is the Lord God. That doesn't quite cut it. Holiness at its core is almost an adjective for God. God is God. God is holy. There is no one like him. He alone is holy. It's almost an adjective for God. And in that sense, he's separate from us. But then you start moving outside the ring and then the things that are associated with him or that he possesses are peculiarly holy, including, for example, the shovel that takes out the ash from the altar under the Old Covenant. That's said to be a holy shovel. Well, it's not moral. It's just a shovel. 
But it's used only for the, the, the sacrificial system. It's peculiarly God's. It belongs to him. Do, 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 do you see? And in that sense, that shovel now becomes holy. It's not to be used in any profane way, in any common way. And then it can be applied to people a little farther out, the next ring out. Then we are supposed to be peculiarly his. But because we're peculiarly his, we have to live in a certain kind of way so that holiness begins to take up notions of morality. Do you see? And you go farther out, and it can be applied to the priests, pagan priests, for example. They don't even know God, but there are a few people, a few passages in the Old Testament that refer to pagan priests as holy men because because they're they're dealing with the realm of the sacred, the realm of the spiritual. They're not not just materialists and so on. Now it's within that broad sweep that God comes along and He says, "Be holy, for I am holy." Now, obviously, we can't be holy in exactly the same. He's not saying, be God, for I am God. But he is saying something like, be so peculiarly mine that you're identified with me. You you are peculiarly mine in thought and word and deed and motive and so on. And sanctification, then, is the same word group. It really is the process or the steps or the cataclysm or whatever that brings you into this state of holiness, which is thus ultimately bound up with the very character of God. So... Uh, that's, not, that's not changing anything that's been said, but it sometimes is helpful to remember that at the heart of sanctification is the sheer holiness of God in the first instance. And that wasn't what you asked me at all, but I just decided I'd... No. I'm like a politician. You ask me anything you like, I'll give my spiel. <laughs> well, that's not an unimportant thing. Isn't it uh, a possibility that without that, uh, we could view sanctification merely as improving in the rules? Correct, correct. Yeah, just mere That's exactly morality. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it, it sheds some light on some funny passages that are peculiar, unless you have that background. Where, where for example, in the case of a mixed marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, where, we're, where the Christian spouse is not to abandon the non-Christian spouse um, b- b- because the presence of the Christian spouse in the home renders the non-Christian spouse and the children holy. Well, it doesn't mean that they're Christians. I mean... The, the man's not converted by definition, or the woman, as the case may be, the, the unbelieving spouse. But they're sanctified. They're set aside for God in some sense, precisely because in that home, unlike all the pagan homes down the street, there's a Christian there. And thus they've been set aside for God. They're, 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 they're somehow bracketed out. They're, they're peculiarly gods in some, in some way. So holiness doesn't, in that sense, you can be holy and not even be a Christian. Depending on the context, you, you, you see, you're, you're, you're set aside for God, and some just like the shovel that takes out the ash is not a Christian, and nor, nor is the shovel improving in holiness. Do, 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 do you see? So, at the heart of it is 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 this business of belonging to God and being peculiarly His, and the way that what that looks like obviously is different in the case of a, a believer under the terms of the new covenant, with all of that means, from being a shovel. But 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 the commonality shed some light on what the whole thing looks like. Okay, now gospel. <laughs> gospel in the Christian life, how does that work 10, 20, 30 years into the Christian life? The same way it works six months after becoming a Christian. So, so, so let me back off. There's some people who think of the gospel as that little bit of the biblical message that tips you into salvation, that tips you into the kingdom. But if, but if the gospel is a much bigger thing, then, then there is a sense in which the gospel is to be preached to unbelievers in the hope and, and, uh, and, and plea that these people will be reconciled to God. But there's also a sense in which the gospel is to be preached to believers. 
Um, because it's this gospel that drives people back to the cross. It's this gospel that sets up a standard when, for example, husbands are told, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, by sacrificing himself for the church's good all the way to the cross. So, husbands, the question becomes, how do you sacrifice yourself for the good of your wife? That's a gospel standard. Or forgive one another, we're hearing tonight, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That's a gospel standard that shapes how you get on in, in, in relationships and, and in forbearance and forgiveness and, 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 and all the rest. So the gospel fully preached in all of its ramifications not only speaks of the power of the Spirit of God and the goal of the Christian in a new heaven and a new earth and resurrection existence and, and all of that. It takes you back to the cross, what God has done in Christ Jesus and all of his redemptive purposes and all of these speak to how we live and, and how we deal with sin and failure now and, 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 and so on and so on. So the gospel thus shapes our lives at at, at, before, before we become Christians, as, as part of becoming Christians. But it shapes our lives six months after, six years after, 60 years after. And in eternity, we'll still be looking back on the impact of the gospel to have brought us to this place. Are there any passages that tell us we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves or uh, that, that pastors should be preaching the gospel to Christians in their church? The, the, one of the things I did a number of years ago was to look up every single passage in the New Testament where you find the word gospel, or that's euangelion, from which we get the word evangel, and, or, or preach the gospel or preach the good news, depending on the translation, the verb euangelizomai and so on. And, and what you discover is that many of these passages do have to deal with preaching on the outside, but a lot of them have to do with preaching in the inside. I mean, that, that's, that's really, really common. And, um, and, and, and when Paul writes to the Corinthians, I want to remind you, you right, the Christians in the church, of the gospel that I preach to you. And then he goes over it all again, you see. And, and, and that leads up to the whole resurrection chapter and how should, they should be thinking of the future and, and what they're heading for and so on. So there are lots and lots of passages like that. In fact, I, I sometimes think, I'm almost reluctant to say this, but only almost. Um, <laughs> You know, there's one glorious passage in the pastoral epistles where, where, where Timothy is told, do the work of an evangelist. And by that, we mean today, do the work of preaching the gospel to outsiders. And God knows we should be doing that. But it's the same root for euangelion, euangelizomai, gospel, preach the gospel, preach the good news. This is euangelistes. I think it should be rendered something like, do gospel work. I don't think it just means, you know, make sure you preach to outsiders. Well, of course you should be preaching to outsiders. That's as plain as a pike staff in the New Testament. But I'm not sure that it's tied to the word evangelist the way it is in our minds. When we, we hear the work of evangelist, oh, Billy Graham, or, you know, we might even have on some churches somebody whose work is well, not the pastor of the church, not, not Christian ed director, not, not Christian music, not what, they're the evangelist. So they're trying to figure out how, how, to, how to win people to Christ and, and do evangelism. But I think the word itself is actually do gospel ministry. I think that's what is meant. And, and that should certainly include a lot of concern for preaching the gospel to the outsiders. Of course, of course, of course, the Great Commission is still there. And, 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 you know, I implore you for the sake of Christ, be reconciled to God. I mean, of course, there's evangelism in the contemporary sense there. But the word itself, I think, really just means do gospel ministry. That's helpful. And the reason I'm reluctant to say that is because somebody's going to take that and say, okay, so I don't have to do evangelism after all, which rather misses the point. I'm expanding the category, not replacing it. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so we can come back to this, uh, this category of uh, gospel preaching, preaching to ourselves, the gospel for Christians throughout. Uh, but Fred, um, your talk on B.B. Warfield uh, maybe raised the question for some that if we, if we only have one nature now, not two, then why do we still sin? Where, where is that sin coming from? I was glad for whoever asked that question because um, I think I wasn't clear enough on that last night as clearly I should have been. Uh, trying to cover too much too quickly, I think. Um, the point I was making was that we are not given an additional nature so that we still have the old nature. Now we're given a new one, and those two fight it out, and we see who wins. Uh, there's a lot of confusion bound up with that. Uh, Warfield's teaching, and I, I think he's right, the New Testament teaching is, is that we have been renewed. We have a new nature. But, as I mentioned in passing, uh, last evening, Warfield emphasizes that we are that salvation is given in stages. So we're back to progressive sanctification. So he would talk about how there's the remains of sin, so that the grip of sin has been broken. We've been made new, but not entirely new yet. So we're still left to struggle with the remains of sin, and we still sin because of that. The work is not done yet. He makes much of that. So what Paul calls a principle of sin in Romans seven. Yeah. Or the flesh? Is there any flesh left? Evidently so. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not in you, but in me. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but the flesh, is not a, the flesh is not a nature. Is that what you're saying? The flesh is not a nature? Well, it is, but I think, I think what you're asking what Warfield taught, I think he would have interpreted that in, sense, uh, in the sense of uh, the remains of sin, so that the, there is a new nature, but that new nature is not entirely holy yet. Basically holy. But they're the remains of sin. And it is, he often described progressive sanctification as a process of eradicating sin. And I think that's what he meant by that. that uh, continually improving this new nature that's been given. It might be helpful to put it this way, I think. What he was against was a notion. There's this old nature that is all bad. And there's an, now there's a brand new nature that's all good. And the two are fighting it out. And who the I is, well, who knows? But, but, but it's, it's, it's one person. It's one being. And, and this one being, this I, now has been renewed. Uh, there's regeneration. It's rebirth. In that sense, there's new nature. But it's not a new nature added on that's completely outside and completely different. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's all this perfection from God is part of what renews us and transforms us. But the detritus of the old one is still, is still, is still is, uh, the old component, shall we say, is still there. Until, until there is ultimate sanctification at the end. Is that, is that fair? It's avoiding two completely disparate, disjunctive natures that fight it out, whilst where you're not sure what the I is. But there still is a battle. But there still is a battle. Yeah. Absolutely. Still fighting. Orfield makes an interesting passage, uh, quotes the hymn, uh, the line, uh, Be of sin, the double cure. We sang it this evening. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, Be of sin, the double cure. The original was, Save from wrath, Save me from its wrath and power. And he notes that the revision of it in the early 1800s was save from, its, uh, from wrath and make me pure. And he says the revision is much better. We have not just been saved from the power of sin. That's true enough, and Warfield himself emphasizes that. But it's more than that. We've been made pure. But then he goes on to say the purity is not complete yet. And so we continue this uh, process of of holiness. So one of the key passages in this discussion is Romans 7, 
at least for some. So I, I'm interested to hear what, I know what Fred believes about this passage. I don't know what Don believes about this passage. Let's start with Fred. The classic passage of Paul uh, seeming to have a conversation with himself. Uh, he has this wrestling. Um, how do you understand that? Is that Paul as a Christian? I think it's Paul in his pre-conversion state. There are several references in there that could, I'm sorry. I think it's Paul in his pre-conversion state. There are some pass- uh, references in that passage that could be read either way. But I think in the context of Romans, Paul is speaking in chapter 6 of the break with the power of sin. And I think he's illustrating uh, what life was like under law and not under grace. And then he, uh, he's showing that the struggle with sin is unbreakable until we are in Christ. There are three views of the passage. The one that's most common, three dominant views. The one that's most common, the one that Martin Lloyd-Jones held, for example, is that this is a picture of Christians still struggling and wrestling within themselves, as of Christians struggling. Then there's the one that that Fred has just articulated. That is, it's Paul as an individual in his pre-conversion life. And um, and, and, uh, uh, my hesitation with that one is, is, that, is, is that Paul's own testimony when he talks about his pre-conversion life does not find him struggling hugely. I mean, he, he's really having a blast, thank you. I mean, he, he's persecuting all these wretched Christians and, and pr- proceeding nicely along with all the righteousness of his peers and held up in high repute. He, he, th- there's, there's no sort of evidence that, that, that before the Damascus Road experience, he was struggling horribly. Um, there's some people who do struggle horribly leading up to their conversion. But... I, Paul doesn't seem to be one of them. And, um, and, and there's a third interpretation, which is the least popular one that I hold. Uh, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> where where I, I think that it has to do with, um, with Paul using the I as a figure for the history of Israel. That is, of, of, of how uh, Israel struggles under the impact of the law until the gospel comes. I think it's a salvation historical uh, way of looking at things that's very common and clearer in, 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 in Galatians, for example, in Galatians 3. But having said that, that's, that's a disputed passage. You just don't base your whole doctrine on a disputed passage. Um, there are lots of passages that nevertheless show Paul still struggling to advance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of them is, Galatians th- is, a, is Philippians th- uh, 3, where, where uh, brothers, I do not consider myself to have arrived but I press on for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable to his death. This on the part of a guy that's been an apostle for a long time. Oh, that I may know him. Did you, did you, did you see? And, and he can write all of chapter 3, which is full of these yearnings and these longings for growth and advancement and progress and so on, without ever using the word sanctification. So it's an instance where there's the doctrine of sanctification without ever using the word sanctification. And, and, and so clearly Paul is still struggling and growing and all, all of that within that framework. It's sanctification, progressive sanctification, even without using the word. So I don't want to deny the struggle. And, uh, I mean, and then our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and high places. So lots of things like that in, in Paul. It's just that I, I'm reluctant to base all of this on the Romans 7 passage, which historically has been understood in one of these three ways. So regardless of your interpretation of Romans 7, it wouldn't necessarily change your theology Correct. as a whole. It's exactly not a, right. It's not a litmus test passage. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You agree with that, Brent? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I should note that 
Uh, the first time I preached through Romans 7, I, I took it as the struggle of the Christian. The second time I preached through, it was the view I just mentioned. Who knows? I may preach through preach the Preach it again, time. brother. Preach it yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the tape room in our church, you can, uh, you can have either view you like. <laughs> I told you they were going to wrestle. So, a little bit. You ought to see the index system for this tape room. I mean, it's wonderful. You know, for view one, go to. For view two. That's good. Okay. Well, let's talk about Romans 6 then. In light of Romans 6 and what it says about that radical defeat of our sin nature that you talked about, Fred, is it possible for a Christian to be stuck in a perpetual uh, state of habitual sin and rebellion, hard-heartedness, unrepentance. Is that possible, number one? And number two, if so, then what do you say to that person? How do you counsel them? Well, I think the answer is going to turn on, on some definitions of what you're talking about. Is it possible for a Christian to be stuck in a sin? Sure. Uh, we've all experienced that to one degree or another. Is it, but what are the extents of that? If, if, if sin's grip has been broken, if what it Part of what it means to be a Christian is that we're freed from sin's dominion and therefore, because we are in Christ, cannot continue to live in sin. Somewhere there's a limit. I don't know where to draw that line. So ultimately, we have to say uh, that if you're going to press the, the meaning of what you sa- you've said, no. But somewhere before that, sure, we have all uh, experienced that kind of thing. Um, and I think the first step uh, is to, first of all, Put the responsibility back to the, to the believer and say, look, you're, you don't have to sin. You have been freed. That is, point them to what God has done for them in Christ already and point to their freedom and point them to the resources that God has given so that they can break free from it through God's grace. And I think that's summarized. We, we talked about Romans 8.14 yesterday, uh, those who are led of the Spirit to conquer sin and all of that. But verse 13 puts the two sides of it together nicely, and that is if we buy the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body. There's, there is this idea of participation in what God is already at work doing in us. Don, anything to add to that? It's important to remember the many, many, many passages that say in one fashion or another that all Christians, without exception, if they're genuine Christians, change the way they live. There is no such thing as a genuine Christian who lives indifferentiably from the world of flesh and the devil. Um, That's why Jesus can say, by their fruit you shall know them. Uh, It's why Jesus can say, when he's talking about the new birth in John 3, he he suddenly likens it to the the wind. You, 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 You see the effects of the wind, you know, a sycamore leaf blowing in the breeze or a dust bunny bouncing down the road as he and Nicodemus are talking. You, you don't know where the wind comes from. They're not talking about highs in the Arabian Gulf and whether it's cyclonic or anticyclonic. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see the effects. And then he says, so it is with everyone who is born of God. In other words, you might not know all the mechanics of how it works, but you see the effects of the Spirit's life within you. So that's bottom line. That's, that's one of the non-negotiables. So you worry about someone who says... You know, my, my, my little son, Johnny, he made a profession at Bible camp when he was eight. And, of course, since he was 14, he's been living like the world and the flesh and the devil. But I believe once saved, always saved. Don't you, Pastor? 
Well, it's barely conceivable that the man is on a really nasty backslidden journey. It's barely conceivable. But as long as there is no fruit, then there is no place for Christians to think that the person is a Christian. He still must be treated as, 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 as somebody who isn't a Christian. And, and, and that's why, likewise, even in the church, if someone falls into a really grievous sin, like the man who's sleeping with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, who is unrepentant and, 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 and won't turn from his sin and, and so on, then he's to be disciplined not only, not only to keep the church pure, but also in the hope that uh, his spirit will be saved in the last day. That is, in the hope that, that it will bring him to repentance and so on. But clearly, Paul does not seem to know how it's going to come out. He, he doesn't say, well, the brother's just temporarily backslidden. He, he, he clearly doesn't know just what's, what's going on in this person's life. And, and, and so you, you, the, the, the discipline is exercised, and, and the proof of whether this is a temporary backslidden condition or something that, that demonstrates that there is no real gospel-centeredness in this life after all is, is really going to be on the long haul. It's, it's, God knows, but we don't always know when we're exercising church discipline. And um, uh, so uh, there are other things to add in. Obviously, there are different rates of growth. Not everybody grows the same time. And some people have more ups and downs. You have to allow for all of those kinds of things. Differing exposure to the means of grace. Differing exposures to the means of grace, different encouragement. Uh, different pressures. I mean, God, God knows the heart and knows what kinds of things some people have had to put up with. And a different pastoral care. Uh, some were supposed to snatch, as it were, out of the fire, and some entreat and beseech. So there are lots of factors that go into all of these things. And so you don't want to become legalistic about it. I don't think that there's enough righteousness in that life, therefore they're not converted. I don't judge people. I'm just a fruit inspector. Um, you, 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 you don't want to get into that mode of thinking, do you, do you, do you know? Yet, yet at, the same time, at the same time, you don't want to flip the other way and start saying, it doesn't really matter how you live um, because, because um, provided you're justified, then, then there's, there's no entailment for sanctification. There's no entailment for fruit. And clearly in the Bible, there's just, there's just so many texts that, 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 that won't let you off like that. Okay, maybe we'll come back to some of those things later on. Fred, let's ask you some questions related to your B.B. Warfield talk. These will be more uh, historically contextual questions. So what is perfectionism? Uh, what's the history there? And what's the higher life movement? What's the history there? Uh, one little anecdote before I start. Um, the, the, the Keswick Conference, uh, which is one of the higher life type conferences came to Princeton in 1916 and uh, one historian has made the remark that when the Keswick conference came to Princeton in 1916 they entered the lair of the aging lion of Princeton and the lion pounced and that is to say a thousand pages later the lion had eaten up uh, every kind of, of higher life kind of teaching and so uh, that was probably the spark that Put Warfield, first of all, on this track of tracing out the various kinds of perfections. Is that where we get his nickname, the Lion of Princeton? Uh, no. Oh. no. That was around before the, the book was written, okay. I think. Okay. Um, there are s several different varieties of perfectionism, and, it's, and it's, it's difficult even to give a summary and a brief, brief response. Uh, there's Wesleyan perfectionism, there's Richelieu uh, perfectionism. Uh, various teachers taught various kinds of perfectionism. With, with one, perfectionism is just simply what you are as in, in, 
as a Christian. Uh, with another, it might be love. If you live the life of love, you're a perfect Christian. One of Warfield's complaints was in every variety, they ended up dumbing down what perfection is, and so perfectionism becomes something very much less perfect than, than what we thought. Um, in one, kind, one shape or another, there was a teaching that the Christian is a perfect Christian. Higher life movements were sort of the stepchild of all of that. They didn't teach that the Christian is perfect, but they used some of the same interpretive principles, and so they end up with um, this passive faith of letting God uh, take over for you and different things like that. But what's common to them are things like a surrendered will. You finally get to the point in your Christian life, somewhere later down the line, where you finally surrender it over to God, and he takes over, and you live this victorious Christian life, or better, God lives this, or Christ lives this Christ, uh, victorious Christian life through you. That's what he's aiming at. Is, uh, is that around today? Oh, uh, very much so. I think prob- probably most of us here have been taught the idea of the two natures, and finally you get to the point where you um, have let go and let God. I've heard many preachers in my background uh, say things like, um, I struggled all my life with uh, bad temper. Until finally that day came when I just gave it over to God. And I've never had to struggle with it uh, since. Um, ironically, some of the times I've heard that from people is it wasn't that clear to me that they, well, if they didn't struggle with their temper, they should have. Um, <laughs> um, so in, in that sense, yeah, I think it's, it's still very much alive and well. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Um, that, 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 that's the sort of hymn that came from that, that that's sort of right. thing. And, and it, but it's worth saying, too, that the Keswick movement, um, uh, the Keswick movement started in the little town of Keswick in England. And um, eventually John Stott was asked to preach on it, uh, preach at it about uh, 45 years ago. And he preached on Romans 5 to 8 at the Keswick conference. And it became one of the turning points at revolutionizing the entire Keswick conference. So uh, the Keswick Conference, there, therefore, has really become in Britain, in the mother Keswick, really an annual Bible conference. I've spoken at the Keswick Conference in Britain uh, many times now, and I'm, I'm not really a purveyor of Keswick theology, so-called. And, and there are different, I mean, I was speaking at the Ke- uh, Hong Kong Keswick this summer, and again, I mean, people know that I'm, I don't have exactly traditional Keswick theology. So, so the, the term Keswick is connected with the word theology, that is something that I can't buy into. But the actual Keswick conferences around the world, uh, some of them are still buy into Keswick theology and some, some don't. So it, just, just to say that in case you get invited to a Keswick conference uh, sometime. Spurgeon has a wonderful story along the line of what you said. In, in, in the 1800s, there was, there was quite a lot of this so, so perfectionism, you know. And this particular pastor who was known to have a bit of a temper, he, um, he, he, he basically preached a sermon one afternoon in a pastor's conference that, that said perfection and how I achieved it. it was, that was, he didn't put it quite that crassly, but that's what he was saying, do you see? And, and at the Q&A, Spurgeon didn't say anything. which meant Everybody was shocked because Spurgeon was quick to rebuke everybody, but he didn't say anything. The next morning at breakfast, he came up behind the guy and poured a pitcher of milk over his head. <laughs> and then as the man's um, temper flared and and his vocabulary turned blue Spurgeon merely smiled and walked away Um, now as a pastoral technique I would not recommend this but that is a true story Apparently, I've heard it several times I I, I haven't taken the time to track that one down so I wouldn't want to put it in print yet but I love it I love it (laughs)
It's too good not to be true. Well, on the other side of the coin, then, you have Warfield, right? Mm -hmm. A critic of Keswick, of higher life, of perfectionism. And uh, he wrote a work called Miserable Sinner Christianity. So what's Miserable Sinner Christianity? Do you agree with it? Uh, Is the kind of language we should use today? It was language, first of all, that was used by the perfectionist types to caricature Reformed teaching about Christians who are still miserable sinners. And Warfield, in two very lengthy articles, addresses that. And the long and short of it is, he, he says, that's right, we are miserable sinners, and we cannot ever get away from it. But he deals with it along the lines of, of Luther's statement of, we are, at the same time, righteous and sinners. At the same time, on the one level, in myself considered, I'm a sinner, and nothing but a sinner, and always will be a sinner. But at the very same time, and always, I'm in Christ, and in Christ, I'm perfect. But if I lose the sense that I'm a miserable sinner, Warfield was concerned, we'll end up fleeing from Christ. We won't see our need from him. We will not be, put it in the language we've been using this weekend, we will no longer be gospel-centered Christians. Because apart from the sense of our sin and the need of forgiveness in Jesus, which causes us always to be looking back to Christ, the Christianity itself will collapse. Don, any thoughts on miserable sinner Christianity? Um, in the Anglican liturgy, um, uh, we, we, most of us are brought up in traditions where we don't, we don't think in terms of the prayer book and so on. But, but the, the, the 1600s prayer book has an awful lot of really, really good theology in it. So Anglicans who still use that prayer book recite every Sunday morning, uh, you, you know, have mercy on us, poor, miserable sinners. We have done those things that we ought not to have done. We have not done those things that we ought to have done. And there is no health in us. And this is, this, this is being said by Christians. Do you see? So it is part of this heritage that recognizes, I mean, have you ever been through a week where you've, you, you've never had a lustful thought or never hated anybody or never wanted to flare out in anger, uh, where you've always loved God with heart and soul and mind and strength, and you've always loved your neighbor as yourself, and, and you, all your thoughts were toward holiness and godliness? And I mean, boy, I haven't had any weeks like that. And, 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 and in fact, the, the, almost the universal experience of Christians is that the closer you get to the light, the more you see your own dirt. The closer you get to God, the, the, more, the, the more you do become aware of your own sinfulness. You, you, you know, I worry about people who don't have any sense of any guilt anywhere. I want to know how distant they are from God. They, they, they mustn't see much of his light if they can't see their own dirt. You, you, you know? And that is not going to change in a definitive way until, until, until glory. But, but at the same time, Luther's, Luther's famous phrase, um, uh, you, you know, righteous and yet guilty still, um, he was dealing primarily there with, with justification, with our status before God. But, but there is another element that has to be added on top of that. We are, we are looking back and seeing transformation. It's not just that we have a right status before God, even though we're still sinners, um, but, but we... we we are actually growing in grace, and we can look back and see the change. One of my favorite quotations in this regard is from John Newton. Did you see the film Amazing Grace? Yeah? Um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that was, that was good in that. Some of it was historically ridiculous, but, 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 but some of it was really good. But they did capture, they did capture some of John, uh, John, John Newton. John Newton was a, a converted slave um, master, 
who, who he estimated trans, transported about uh, 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic in the old sail, sailing ships before he was converted. And uh, after he was converted, he said it, it's, it, every night in his, in his nightmares he could hear them scream. And he, he is the one who was eventually converted, became minister in the little town of Olney. Um, I, w- I went to the museum there and, and made photocopies of some of his sermons that have never been um, handwritten out, but have never been published. And, uh, he, and he was the one who wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. But then in his diary, he says something like this. This is not the exact wording, but pretty close. Um, I went and looked it up the other day just to get the exact wording. And, but the, the, his wording was very verbose and post-Puritan language and long sentences and you can't remember the stuff in any case but the substance of it was this um, I am not what I want to be I am not what I ought to be I am not what one day I will be but I am not what I was and by the grace of God I am what I am do, do, do you see so it's not just that you have a perfect status in Christ but you are also growing and as you grow you see more of the dirt but you also see that there's change and by the grace of God I am what I am and I suspect that for many of us that's also true not least if we've been converted as adults you know we, you, you, you see how uh, how at one level you can speak of yourself still as a miserable sinner you know and, and, and actually you would be able to recite the words of the Anglican prayer book you know I'm uh, uh, we, we, we've done those things that we ought not to have done. We have not done those things that we ought to have done. And there is no health in us. Yet at the same time saying, but by the grace of God, I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So that's, that's part of, of a kind of broader perspective on sanctification that I think is very helpful. Is another part of this equation, uh, this issue of whether we can um, view ourselves as growing, uh, whether we can uh, acknowledge growth, in seeing fruit, or is growth merely the acknowledgement and deeper acknowledgement of our need? Yes, we hear that is. a lot today, right? We hear it sounds very humble. Um, it sounds right to say growth is merely the further, deeper acknowledgement of our need of the gospel. Is that the whole truth? No, it's part of the truth, but it's on, but it's not the whole truth. I mean, you ought to be able to see some growth in. In, in, in your prayer life or some growth in your understanding of scripture or your grow, some growth in your ability to handle uh, obstreperous Christians with charity and, and, and so on. You know? Yeah. This has been a recent debate and discussion uh, among blogs in our circles, uh, in our circle, I guess, uh, debating the, the issue of rest versus effort uh, in the Christian life, resting in the gospel versus disciplining ourselves unto godliness. Uh, can you speak to that? Some of these folks, well, maybe most of these folks won't be familiar with blog posts and any of that kind of debate, but the issue of rest versus effort. Um, any, any comments or thoughts on that? Don's more familiar with the blog, so why don't you go ahead. I know you've read them too, though. <laughs> well, the two that have been, that, that, uh, that Ryan is almost certainly referring to primarily, um, uh, both post on the Gospel Coalition website. So, you know, I jolly well ought to know something about them. Um, uh, and I've let them run um, <laughs> because I think the debate is healthy. Um, and in fact, at our, at our council meeting that we're going to have in, in May, where Ryan, Ryan will be present, he's on the council, some of this stuff is going to be thrashed out just a wee bit too. 
and 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 Fred was saying that when he reads some of this stuff, he he, he thinks that that Warfield w- would have been pretty happy with what both sides were saying. So while both of these sides on the blogs are are contradicting each other, um, um, Warfield would probably say a plague on both your houses if you absolutize either one side or the other. But, but at the same time, there's something to be said for both. Um, the question is how to integrate them. So on the one hand, you really do have to trust Christ. At the, at, at the end of the day, what, what finally commends you to God is not how hard you try. What commends you to God is the utterly sufficient sacrifice of Christ. That's resting in Christ. On the other hand, there are so many, many, many passages in the New Testament that talk of Christian life and experience as, as warfare. You know, you're a good soldier and so on and so on. So discipline yourself or as an athlete stri- striving to, to, to win the prize or as, as a farmer who works hard in order to receive some of the reward from the vineyard. Or we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers and, of this evil age and, 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 and so on. And I, I put my body in, in subjection so that I, uh, after having preached to others, I might not myself be a castaway. The last few verses of First Corinthians 9. Lots and lots of texts like that. And you can make sense of them, it seems to me, when you remember one of the passages that Fred quoted last night. And there are a number of passages like this, but this one is particularly clear. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Um, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's not a question of God having done his bit, and then you come along and do the extra bit by really trying hard. Because that suggests this little bit is abstracted from what God is doing. God has done his bit. Now it all depends on you. And now we speak of cooperating together with God. It's God and I together to produce sanctification. Well, there's a sense in which you can say that. But there's a sense in which you must not. And if this bit that I contribute is independent of God, then it's really quite wrong. This text says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet yet it is God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That is, even our struggling to, our wanting to be pure, our, our, our disciplining of ourselves, and then all the things that we do, at the end of the day, it, it's because God is working in us both to will and to do of his, his good pleasure. Do, do, do you see? So that although we must be struggling along these lines and growing, yet, yet as we look at our own struggles analytically from a theological perspective, from a biblically faithful perspective, we recognize that we do this precisely because God is at work in us. That's one of the signs that God is at work in us, that we want to struggle and keep on going. Do, 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 do you see? So this does not mean, therefore, that you back off into a passivity and you let go and let God. God's doing all the struggling on my behalf. But rather, it's precisely God working in us that empowers us and impels us and, and activates us and motivates us and strengthens us in, in order to, to, keep, to keep struggling. So you, you are mandated by Scripture to choose a right, to make right decisions, to be godly, to be self-disciplined, and all the rest of those things. And one, of, one, of, one, of the bits, one, one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And yet, and yet, it's one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit, but it's an element of the fruit of the Spirit. So, so this self-control speaks of what we control of ourselves. But if, on the other hand, if we have self-control, it's because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see? So what we need to get rid of is this sort of bifurcation in which God does everything and we sort of sit around and, and, and do nothing. Uh, or, on the other hand, where we think of the whole thing as God doing so much and then we add our bit. They're both wrong. And you want to say a plague on both your houses. Uh, whereas if you put them together and see that the things that are mandated of us are, are, are precisely 
um, the things that God empowers us to do by his spirit, then it seems to me they're, they're coming a little closer together. Is that fair? Yeah. I think in the, in the blog um, debate that was happening, I think one of the primary concerns was that on the one side, there's uh, a push for giving effort, striving for holiness, striving against sin. That's what's commanded. And on the other side, there's a concern that we're going to enter into our efforts and striving without a gospel motive. And so there's a press, no, you should just rest in your justification, rest in what God has done for you. And there's a concern that in this emphasis on effort and striving, there'll be a loss of a gospel centrality in it all. And I sympathize with that. But I think what there might be happening in that is, is, is an either-or, when it should be a both-and, that there are multiple motivations. Of course, the underlying and the primary and the overarching motivation has to be gospel concerns, what God has done for us in Christ, both in justification and definitive sanctification and all the rest. And in the Spirit's work continually working through us. That has to be our primary focus, what God has done and the provisions that we have in Christ. But still, there are obligations. And still there are matters of rewards. That's, that's a motive that Don talked about the other night. So there, there are multiple motiva- motivations, and we shouldn't be afraid of that, so long as gospel considerations are central. Um, we talked about this amongst the elders at, at lunch. Um, there, there is also a difference in sort of pastoral diagnosis and application. Consider these verses from James 1, which are part of what I did not read this morning. In fact, one of the reasons I didn't, read them is because if I had read them I would have felt compelled to unpack them and it would have taken just too long but um, uh, first uh, James 1 9 and following believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower for the sun rises with scorching heat And withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So the gospel comes to a congregation, and there are some people in it that are poor, oppressed, in the first century slaves. They're nobodies. They're just the cast-offs. And the gospel comes and says, take pride in your high position. You're a son of the eternal king. You inherit all things in Christ Jesus. All are yours, and Christ is God's. And yet the same gospel comes to rich dudes in the same congregation and says, don't you understand that you're just dust? At the end of the day, you're going to take out exactly what this fellow takes out. Absolutely nothing. And so the same gospel comes to different people and it's applied to them in in somewhat different ways. Now bring that sort of reality. I think there are a lot of passages in the New Testament that, 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 that talk along these lines, how the gospel is applied to different people somewhat differently. It's the, the same gospel, but the application is going to be a bit different. It's why, it's why Puritans sometimes spoke of the importance of the cure of souls. When we speak of counseling, they spoke of the cure of souls. And, and they used the medical terminology because they saw that a big part of it was a right diagnosis. And, and um, now apply it to this situation. You see, if, if you... If you come to a time in society or in a local church where you see a lot of people um, skidding down toward un- indiscipline, where a lot of the young people in the church are, are not praying anymore, a lot, very few people in the church are having family devotions anymore, um, there's, there's not much care for evangelism, there's not much care for other people, people are just happy in the gospel, 
then, then th- th- there is a part of, of ministry that wants to start laying down the law again, as it were, laying down the moral standards. The trouble is that you lay down the moral standards really, really hard. Then it becomes a church that is characterized by do, 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 do. And you start giving the impression by do, 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 doing, then eventually you please God and you just destroy the gospel. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you see? But at the same time, if you just preach the gospel in, in, in a way that God has done it all and there are no entailments in how you live, then you can say, done, 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 and, 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 and free from the law, oh, happy condition, and, and I don't have to do anything. And that's not quite right either. So, so in, in, a, in a church that has just got lots and lots and lots of moralism in it, what you need to see is the comprehensiveness of the gospel. That's what needs to be applied to the church, how it changes and it touches and affects everything. But once you start getting a whole lot of people who, 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 who really do understand something of grace, but they're beginning to sink in a lethargy back into a comfortable acceptance of grace without understanding that grace has entailments in terms of obedience and striving, then you start needing, it starts becoming urgent to, to pass on those sorts of emphases too, do you, do you see, while still avoiding the do-do-do of, of just mere, mere moralism. Um, to put it in the way Tim Keller likes to put it, the, the, religious, world, the religious world says do-do-do in order to gain something, to gain reward, to be acceptable before God. And, 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 and there's a certain kind of uh, 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 other world that, that, that just sort of some, somehow reflects, rests on God in an ungodly way and does not see the entailments for, for how you live. Whereas the gospel says, because it's done, 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 therefore this is how we must live. And, and to get all of that together in a right balance so that you, you, you don't swing the pendulum one side or the other and, and destroy people or destroy the gospel is, is really an important part of the cure of souls. So you're saying some people need um, rebuke because they're presumptuous and lazy. Yes. And in others need the balm and comfort of the gospel. Exactly and they're right. actually held back in their Christian life because yeah. of their unhealthy, unbiblical guilt. Yeah. I mentioned this again to the elders earlier today, that when I was pastor of a church in Vancouver, we had a <clears throat> number of our Bible studies were evangelistic. And people came in from the outside and got converted in them. <clears throat> this particular chap got converted. He was in his late 30s, and he'd spent half his life in jail. He had a low IQ, flunked out at school, was wrong side of the track, social misfit. He'd really been a scuzzball for all his life, and then really got, got genuinely converted. And, and when he got converted, on the other hand, he had this this background to him that he'd sit at the back of the church, and if I got anywhere near judgment or sin, or he'd sit there and weep. He had such a tender conscience at this point. And all the sort of regular reprobates were, were looking at this guy crying and, and saying, boy, the pastor's really powerful this morning. Give it to him, you know. And, 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 and if I got anywhere near grace and the, the, the spectacular freedom of it all, he'd look at me and, and could scarcely believe it could be true for somebody as bad as he was. And, and, and meanwhile, I was, I was wanting some of the sort of regular people who sort of settle into lethargy to hear the threats and so on and become convicted of their sin and be a little less confident of the grace applicable to them because it wasn't working out their lives very powerfully. And, but that's part of the challenge of preaching all the time. You're preaching to a diverse crowd in a church and you're trying to make it apply to the right, to the right people, you see? And, 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 uh, and so partly it's by the balance of messages, partly by the way application is done. Uh, but, but, but the same thing here. You, you, you see, if, if, you, if you only say, you're a child of the king, you're a child of the king, therefore, uh, do you think God wants you to, 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 to be a prince and, or a princess in poverty? Uh, claim, ask of God, you're a child of the king, all things are yours, don't you understand? 
Then you get an over-realized eschatology and prosperity gospel and, and, and all kinds of arrogance and, and so on that is really quite dangerous. On the other hand, if you go to a really poor and oppressed part of the world where everything is, is people are, are, don't have much to eat and, and they're oppressed by wicked landlords and, and, and totalitarian regimes and so on, and all you talk about is you're a miserable sinner, you're a miserable ser- sinner, um, th- th- then, then you're not hearing something of the freedom, of the power of the gospel to transform and elevate people and raise them up to be sons and, and daughters of the living God. So, 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 so what you especially emphasize is going to vary a little bit on your, your diagnosis. It's not that the, that the doctrine changes. It's, it's where the emphases run is going to depend a little bit on, 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 on your spiritual diagnosis of what's, what's going on in, in people's lives. So, Fred, how does that look in pastoral ministry if, uh, if we're talking indicatives and imperatives here, uh, commands, uh, sorry, realities, gospel realities, and and Christian commandments. Um, how do we avoid neglecting or distorting one or the other in preaching in in one church for a long time? How, how do you get the? I don't want to say balance right, but in a sense, the balance, the, the relationship of those two. How do you get it right? Well, over the long haul, it's much easier. The, the, the more, the bigger difficulty is at a given time. If I'm, we mentioned this this afternoon, if I'm preaching, for example, through Ephesians 5, where on the one hand, uh, the command is to the wives, be submissive to your husbands. And on the other hand, the command of the husband is, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I know when I'm preaching, I, I know that there, I know my people. I know that when I say, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, I know there's some guys out there that are going to abuse that. And so I've got to hurry up and get to husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. But I know as soon as I overemphasize that, there's, I know my people, there's some wives out there that I don't submit because he's, you know. And you've got to, to get the balance. And I think it's, it's what, what Don is saying here, that the gospel cuts very different in varying ways, depending on the person. Uh, in a, in a, a corporate setting, you're preaching to your congregation. You have to try to make your point and yet couch that point in the balancing ways without losing the point, which is sometimes very difficult. And sometimes it just requires some one-on-one counseling. Yeah, that's good. It, can I ask uh, one more, maybe, maybe two more questions on this theme, but on a more pragmatic level or a specific level, I guess, of the role of the Bible in the Christian life. Um, How do we teach, for instance, new believers how to do basic discipleship, the spiritual disciplines, without it coming across like a checklist kind of Christianity? After you. (laughs) Um, I'm in danger of giving you a checklist if I (laughs) tell you what needs to be done. Um, I think that a lot of those things are actually best learned by imitation. Um, You can teach them in a big group, uh, do the following 13 things, and they might all be wise, wise things to do. But it's much more effective if you get some, some young guy that's, that's just converted and an older man comes along and says, look, I want you to be in my Bible study for the next six months. I want to show you what it looks like to be a Christian man. Watch me. 
And, and we're, we're nervous about that sort of watch me language, but that's Pauline language. Be an imitator of me, even as I also am of Christ. So we're getting all kinds of people converted nowadays who, who have never seen family devotions. They don't, they don't know the Bible has two testaments. They're, they're bone ignorant. They've never seen a Christian family. And they're, they're quite prepared to sort of replicate their wretched homes in a new generation coming along without any thought. And, 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 and somewhere along the line, part of teaching what being a Christian man is, a father and a husband in a home, is, is going to be picked up by having non-Christian men or, or newly converted Christian men coming into the home and having meals there and forming friendships and being in a Bible study and, and families doing things together. One of the reasons why hospitality is so much emphasized in the New Testament is not just so that you can sit around and eat hot dogs or whatever, but, 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 but so, so that, so that Christian, the Christian ethos of priorities and discussion and family devotions and all gets passed on, you know? Um, I, I, I was brought up in a family that, that, that had family devotions. So we had family devotions with our kids as well, with, with our family as well. But, but how, how would I have thought about that? How would I have done that if, if somebody hadn't modeled it for me? So I could have had somebody at the front telling me what to do, but it wouldn't be nearly as impressive as being in a family where it's done and watching it and, and, and so on, you know? That's really impressive. And, and, and so within that framework, I think that there are a lot of things along the line of the so-called spiritual disciplines, Bible reading and prayer. You can, you can lead people through, through, through a, a simple set of exercises on prayer. Or I've led people through you know, the book that became uh, called A Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers, teaching people to prayer using the prayers of the Bible. That can become a Bible study that leads into prayer time for um, three months, six months. And it, it can revolutionize a, a church's prayer life by, by using Pauline, Pauline prayers as... Uh, I've, I've sketched out a manuscript on praying with Moses and praying with David as well. I just never got it all written up. But there are a lot of things to be learned from the prayers of Scripture that can be taught not only cerebrally, but, but then worked into the prayers in the church and the prayers in homes and prayers in families so that people learn how to pray. And, 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 and prayer can be taught. The, the disciples turn to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. It, it's, not, it's not something that just comes as sort of a, a dose of, of spirit power from heaven. It's, it's something that, that, that is taught. And, 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 and some of that is, is communicative, it's cerebral, it's propositional, but some of it is, is, is imitated. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's modeled and, and then it's, it's passed on within that framework. I don't know of anything more effective than what he's describing as one-on-one discipleship. And one of the challenges of, of pastoral ministry is to get away from the professionalism when it's the pastor who does that with each new believer. Um, you spread yourself so thin that it gets difficult to do everything and try to cultivate in the church a sense of the people, the more mature Christians, taking on yes. this challenge of meeting with the, the new believer like he's talking of. So, so don't think of it simply in terms of, of professional mis- ministry. A, a couple of additional things. There are a couple of books that have been uh, published in the last two years. Um, that I don't remember their titles, but, but both of them are saying the same thing. How to read the Bible with others. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, how to sit down with, with somebody else who, you might be a Christian for 15 years, and you sit down with somebody who's a brand new baby Christian and say, let's read the Bible together. It can be done at Starbucks. So, so for, for once a week, for, for an hour, 
over, over a latte, uh, read the Bible together and go through Mark or Acts or whatever and, and, and talk about it. And what, what you're doing is teaching them how to read the Many people don't know how to read the Bible. They, it, it doesn't make sense to them. They, they don't know how to follow the flow of an argument. And, and so you take that seriously, do a little bit of homework first and a small commentary or something. Boy, that can be really a, an enriching experience. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that leaders in a church can often do things by exponential growth if they're careful to build slowly. So I have a friend, for example, in Australia who pastored all, all of his years of pastoral ministry. He would, he would start some, some oh, let's say, a, a weekend seminar for seven guys doing something or other on Bible exposition or a certain doctrine or working through Romans, maybe eight or ten hours over a weekend with just seven guys. That's it. You know, and he'd prepare for it diligently. Just seven guys in a church of hundreds. You think, boy, is that the best use of your time? But then he'd spot which one in that seven was really quickest and was alert and asking the right questions. So then he'd take it, you know, three months later, six months later, another weekend, and he'd have this guy with him saying, I want you to be my assistant this time. And maybe he, he would give him one of the sessions to do and train him and work him up, you see. Then three months later, he'd do it again. And this time he says, listen, I want you to lead it this time and I'm going to be your assistant. And the next time, the guy runs it, chooses another assistant, and the pastor is doing something else, starting another course. And so suddenly, you, you, that's slow to begin with, but that's a way of multiplying. After a few years, that thing multiplies exponentially, you see, by starting small, thinking big. Starting small with discipleship and training and so on, and then the, the mathematics works out that after a while, you've got people multiplying all over the place. Fred, uh, Don mentioned family worship in his home. Um, anything you can share about your home? You grew up in a, a pastor's home as well, a good Christian home. Um, what ways did your parents model uh, Christian living or teach you about the Christian life um, in, in an exceptional way, a noteworthy way that that might be helpful for others to hear. We had all the normal ingredients of what we call family worship. We would uh, read a book, we would do the catechism, we would read the scriptures, we would sing, do all of those, those various kinds of things, and it was a variety of, of approaches that way. But I think probably the most effective thing, looking back, is that my parents did not view their Christian faith as something that affected Sunday only. Very much for them. This was life. And that atmosphere just pervaded everything about our home, uh, to the comments that were made of things on TV or, or whatever. Uh, everything was about God. Everything was about Christ. Everything was about serving Christ. And, and everything was brought back to that center. And that, that's just powerful. That's really helpful. Thanks. Any books in the Christian life as we wrap up this section? Books in the Christian life that uh, you found uh, most helpful, you recommend the most? Favorite authors? One of my favorite is uh, Sinclair Ferguson. I recommend almost everything he writes, almost, because he's Presbyterian, I'm Baptist. We, we argue about those things. <laughs> uh, he's just a marvelous theologian. He's another one who I like to say is a theologian of the heart. Wonderful, wonderful Christian man and a wonderful expositor. He's got one book. It's called Know Your Christian Life. I think the new title is The Christian Life. And it's just a wonderful outline the theologically of what the Christian life is from predestination to glorification. Oh, so foundationally, that's a great one. He has another one, though, called Children of the Living God, which is what is, what is it to live as a child of God? 
And it's wonderful expositions for people. Handy little books too, aren't yes, they? Yes, yes, yeah. they're very usable. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. used them in church uh, with, for reading groups with people. They're very helpful. We really do have a rich heritage in English. You know, It's hard even to know where to start because the, there is so much available that's out there. Um, uh, when our kids were young, we used the Catherine Voss uh, children's Bible storybook. Now there's a better one by Sally Lloyd-Jones. No connect- connection with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, but that's a very good children's Bible story book. Uh, if our kids ever get married and, and have grandchildren, uh, they will be getting some Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, and there's an, a new series that's been published as well that even goes through some of the fathers of the church. In, in my spiritual formation group at Trinity, um, for some reason, we've got seven couples this year that are producing babies during the school year. Unbelievable. And for each of them, my wife makes them some, some, some frilly thing or other for the baby, and, and, and we buy them a couple of books. And, and the, the books are children's books of one sort or another. There, there's, there's even some on the church fathers. There's, there's a little children's book on Ignatius, another one on Athanasius, and so on, so on, so on. We give those things away, too, to start families off in serious reading and, and, and so on. And um, then, then, then uh, the, I remember having a, a, a dinner maybe 10 years ago with, with Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, who wrote Knowing God. And that book has just sold and sold and sold and sold over the years. And I said to him one day, why do you think it is sold so well? He said, because people don't realize it, but it's essentially a book of Christian spirituality. That was very insightful. You see, it's really a book on the doctrine of God, in little short, chippy chapters um, but on the other hand, also warmly written that if you get your doctrine of God sorted out, then it feeds your soul and nurtures you and so on. It's really a book on Christian spirituality that, that begins with God. Instead of beginning with me and my experiences, it, be, it begins with God and shows you the entailments. So that's, that's another book to throw into the pot for, you know. And then there are classics like Bunyan's uh, 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 Pilgrim's Progress and, and, and things like that too that every Christian ought to read. And, and, and so, so the, the list of possible books in the area is, is, just, is just huge. Um, for, for some people, if you're not bad readers, if I'm, unless I begin to sound like a peddler, the two books, For the Love of God, can sometimes help people in, um, mm-hmm. in, in, in Bible readings. Um, I, I wrote them. But, but, but that's a weakness. The strength of the two books is that they're based on the Andrew Murray Machine Bible reading scheme. And, and Andrew Murray Machane was a Scottish pastor, died at the age of 29, and was known all over Scotland as the saintly Mr. Machane. And his Bible reading scheme that I reproduced in those books, and, and, and it gives you a model of either uh, two chapters a day or four chapters a day. If you read the four chapters a day model, then in the course of a year, you've read the New Testament and Psalms twice and the rest of the Old Testament once in the course of a year. And if you read two chapters a day with his scheme, then, then over two years you'll have done all of that. But the, the advantage of the scheme is that you, you, it's not going just consecutively. Um, if you just go consecutively, sooner or later you're going to get you know, 15 chapters of genealogies and chronicles, or you're going to go through the sacrificial system of Leviticus, and, and God bless you, you're not going to feel very sanctified. I mean, it, 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 eventually you get enough training, but it's, it's going to be discouraging, do you, do you see? But on, on January 1, you're reading Genesis 1, Ezra 1, Matthew 1, and Acts 1. So you're, you're reading constantly in both Testaments, you see, and you're beginning to see how things come together. And so, so Bible reading schemes like that can help you in your spirituality and, and it, spiritual. And then you always write a, a one-page 
uh, commentary on one of those chapters. That's right. I write a one-page commentary on one of the chapters of those readings. Really and so volume one is one column, volume two is another mm -hmm. column, and volumes three and four are on the way as well. So if you eventually, uh, you'll be getting really a whole lot of... A lot of devotional books are sort of a verse a day keeps the devil away sort of thing, um, mm -hmm. with a verse here and a verse there. And you don't learn any biblical theology. But, but the point is, if you're reading the whole Bible in these large gasps with, with, with a, a meditation on the, the whole theology of the chapter, then, then you, you do that for three or four years, and, and you'll, you'll have picked up a great deal of biblical theology, just huge. I saw my wife get very excited to hear that volume three and volume four are on the way. Well, I say She's on used the way. I mean, the return of Christ is also imminent. <laughs> All right, let's uh, hit pause on the Christian life, and uh, let me ask you guys what some trends are that you might see in North American Christianity um, that are encouraging and some that are concerning. Fred, why don't you start? Don can answer that much better than I can. I'm not traveled like he is. That's Come on, you're a punting guy. That is definitely one for you, brother. Uh, you get on the Internet, don't you? No. <laughs> The, the, um, we're all aware of, of dangers in the culture, um, uh, more and more uh, public immorality of various kinds, less and less tolerance under the name of tolerance, um, uh, the incivility of public discourse, not just political but in every domain, um, uh, fears of economic and ecological and other disasters, um, uh, a breakdown of the family, the number of the number of, of kids um, born out of wedlock. Forty percent of all kids born in this country are born uh, to, out of wedlock. Uh, what what is that going to do down the road? I mean, we're all we're all familiar with those with those sorts of uh, statistics. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty horrendous. Um, yet I have to tell you, I am more encouraged today than I was ten years ago. Um, because God seems to be raising up a new generation of young men and women, disproportionately young men, I have to say, uh, who, who, who are um, developing somewhat Calebite um, sensibilities, give me this mountain, uh, wanting to be mentored, wanting to uh, learn theology, uh, wanting to plant churches, um, wanting to do it in, in difficult places, not just comfortable suburbs. Now, now, some of this stuff is ugly, you know. Uh, we're still a fallen generation. And so some of it is, is, is needlessly aggressive and in your face and sometimes can be arrogant. But, but when I look, <clears throat> you, you know, when we have a national conference, the last national conference of the coalition, we had something like 7,000 people there. Um, uh, 80 or 85% were under the age of 40. And this spring in April, TGC, to, to get, T4G, Together for the Gospel, they'll have about 8,000 people there. And the same sort of ratio. That is terrific because that's where the future is, you, you, you know? And, and, and these things are really interesting. And it's not just in, 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 in America. There, uh, there are smaller movements, different movements that are popping up in different parts of the world. Uh, small but significant in France. Small but significant in, um, in, in Britain. Uh, fairly large and significant in Brazil and, and in many other places. And... and um, 
It's being fed by a lot of things. I, 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 I think that if, if the Lord has mercy on us, we'll look back on these years in, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and think this was the beginning of a turn. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hugely encouraged. I, it's a great time to be alive. Uh, John Piper and I make jokes. Uh, you know, it's a bizarre world. There are all these 30-year-olds that want, us, want to listen to us 60-year-olds. It's, it's bizarre. It just didn't happen 20 years ago, you know? And, you know, it's a great time to be 60, as far as I'm concerned. Is there anything concerning that you see on the radar of uh, evangelical Christianity? Uh, Well, obviously, many concerning things. What's most concerning to you? Or up there in the top few of the list? I don't know. I've not thought of that question. Um... One of the things that comes to mind is the, among a concern that I've I've seen among, and I don't want to paint too broad of a brush, but again, among many of this movement that I'm so happy with that I mentioned earlier, the gospel mafia pushing the the gospel, and there's much more of a gospel centrality and and all of that, and and I'm I'm thrilled with that like Don is. Uh, But in some aspects of it, there seems to be, in some, a lack of, of concern over personal godliness. It's, it's more of a, it's more of a, I'm content with what I am in Christ and, and not enough push to personal godliness. Thankfully, that's not uh, widespread throughout the movement, but, but there's enough of that, that that is concerning. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, so one more question. You each have one more sermon to preach. I don't. And that's it. No, not, no not, not this weekend. Uh, what did I miss? Hypothetically, you have one more sermon in life to preach. Hopefully this isn't prophetic. <laughs> what would you preach? Your next sermon is your last one. What would you preach? I don't know how to answer it. I don't know that I could answer it unless I was really faced with that. Uh, I'm certain it would be something very gospel-centered. Beyond that, I don't know how to answer that. I don't either, but I think it would depend a bit on where it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I don't travel, so I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is if I only had one more to, 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 to go, then you're going to have to preach the second sermon tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll start doing video around here now. <laughs> okay. Don, if you have one more book to write, and only one more book to write, what would it be? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I really don't know how to answer those sorts of, what's the most important thing you've ever read, or what's the most important thing you've ever said, or what's the most important theologian in your life, or what's the most important book that you'd write if you had one more birthday. I, I have no idea how to answer that. I really, I'm not trying to duck it. I just don't know how to answer it. Okay. Are those your least favorite questions? <laughs> no. Um, I've been interviewed by enough secular people where I can think of a lot worse ones. Uh, but, but they're just ones that I don't, I don't know how to answer. It's not that I want to duck them. I just have no idea how to answer them. Yeah. Okay. Anything on the horizon uh, for either of you as far as uh, book projects coming out that you want to share with us? 
I've been, um, I'll be working with uh, PNR on a, hope if I can just get to it, they want me to, you've seen the uh, guided tour series that they have, Steve Nichols has done some, uh, so it's Jay Gresham Machen, a guided tour of his life and thought, and there's Martin Luther, a guided tour to his life and thought, and they'd like me to do the one on, on Warfield if I could just get to it. And then there's another one, well there are a couple others in the line, but I'm not so sure they're, when they're going to happen, so, but that's, that's the next one, if, if I can only get to it. Well, I just had two out this month, so I, uh, the, the, the Intolerance of Tolerance and the one that I edited with Tim Keller, The, 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 the Gospel of Center, which is really an exposition of, uh, of, of, of the foundation documents of TGC. And uh, so they've just barely begun to, to circulate. Um, I've just about finished a little manuscript on Jesus, the Son of God. Um, but it's, it's a short it's a short book. Um, I'm supposed to finish editing the plenary addresses of the last Gospel Coalition this week or next week. And um, I am supposed to finish the seventh edition of the New Testament Commentary Survey um, all in the next three weeks. But they're, they're all close. I mean, it, it sounds better than it is, but they're, 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 they're all close. And um, yeah, I have to finish the book on evangelicalism. Um, that's, that's close as well. And then I'll get to please your wife and, and do those two, uh, which are started again but are not finished. I'm one of these ridiculous people who keeps a number of projects going at once. And, and, and so, so suddenly they all come out at once and people say, oh, how did you do seven books in the last, well, it's been the last ten years, just that they haven't all come out at once. You know? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us, Fred and Don, this weekend. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your time tonight. Fred, would you uh, close us in prayer tonight? Yes. Our Father, what a good God you are. We thank you for how you've provided for us so richly in Christ. We're thankful for your word that we have been able to share together this weekend. The blessing it is. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a joy indeed to meet with others who have this common faith, common love for Christ, our Redeemer, and to rejoice together in the gospel. We thank you for this church. Thank you for its ministry, for Ryan. We pray that you will preserve them, preserve their witness and their ministry. We pray that you'll cause them to prosper in the gospel in every way. We thank you for Dr. Carson and the ministry that you've given him thankful for the blessings of this weekend and the ministry of the word, the fellowship with one another. We look forward to our time tomorrow meeting together and Lord we pray that you will meet with us. Shape us by your word. We ask in Jesus name.